All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The United States of anxiety. We are all living in it. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, there is a lot of anxiety about our collective future. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and that anxious feeling is something that our colleagues here in the newsroom at WNYC have been exploring for months. They've made a podcast called The United States of Anxiety, documenting how and why Americans feel so differently about where our nation is right now. The show just completed a series of live call-in episodes, and I was invited to host one of them. I, of course, chose to focus on technology and how it's affecting us in our post-election world. You're not surprised. And I wanted to talk specifically about two things. What's happening to our online social lives and how we go forward balancing our digital civil liberties with keeping this nation safe. And as you will hear, the callers had such great insight and really pointed questions for my two guests. Farhad Manju, the New York Times tech columnist who joined me from Mountain View in California. He, by the way, has been writing about his own temptation to quit Twitter. I was also joined by the excellent Mark Rotenberg. He heads up the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC. It's in D.C., but he was Skyping us from a conference in Paris. I hope you'll stick to the end because it really is an important conversation. Topics that need to start being discussed out in the open right now. So thanks for listening. Late 50s, early 60s, uh, we're out here and it was a nice place to grow up. It was great. You felt a real sense of community. My neighborhood growing up, I mean, everybody knew everybody. I don't really know my neighbors. I just worry about the younger people because what have they got to look forward to? Any kids nowadays? The American dream is dead. Some of you are frustrated, even furious. And you know what? You're right. We are going to build a great border wall to stop illegal immigration. Any immigrants from South America or Central America, what's going to happen? You're always going to need immigrants. But you cannot try to shove it down people's throats. We're a country of immigrants, and that's why America is so great. And that's why Trump's going to make it great again. God bless the United States of... Anxiety. 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 
special post-election live call-in episode of the United States of Anxiety, WNYC's election series that documents the experiences and perspectives that informed voters and their choice for president. I'm Anoush Samarodi, host of the podcast Note to Self from WNYC Studios. Tonight, our conversation is about technology. I would like to welcome my guest for this first half hour. Farhad Manju is the technology columnist for The New York Times. His piece today is called Social Media's Globe-Shaking Power. So let's start with Google. Um, Farhad, since the election, there's been a lot of pressure on Google, on Facebook, to acknowledge that their algorithms spread articles, information that may or may not be based on fact. And now both companies are saying that they're going to change their advertising policies to explicitly prohibit sites that traffic in fake news from making money off lies. That's a quote from your piece. Is is this a big deal or is this just lip service? Google sort of has been trying to fight spam and fraud and essentially lies for some time. Facebook kind of has a different mission, which Mm -hmm. is to connect people and connect you to the world. And I don't think it has as much or has had as long an interest in something like accuracy. Uh, Not to say that it has actively kind of pushed fake news, but just part of its culture and the way that it works, I don't think that they have thought about this as as big a problem as others have until recently. Yeah, and it was interesting. Mark Zuckerberg, he put out obviously a Facebook post on this very topic saying that, you know, he doesn't want to start trafficking and deciding what is the truth. But at the same time, BuzzFeed is reporting that some Facebook employees have created an unofficial internal Facebook task force to – they're like, if well, if the boss isn't going to do it, maybe we need to start doing it. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, it's really surprising, actually. In Silicon Valley tech companies, you don't usually hear about sort of internal dissidents. You know, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't really happen very much. They're usually sort of they go along with the corporate line. I think what's unusual here is that I mean, a couple things to keep in mind. It's very difficult to find anybody who works at Facebook or who works at Google or any of the other big companies who were Trump supporters, this sort of speaks to this larger bubble question. And even before the election, we had heard sort of rumblings that people within Facebook had been worried about or been talking about the role that it played in the campaign and in election news. And so I think, you know, people at Facebook probably feel strongly about the election. And they probably feel that Zuckerberg's response was somewhat dismissive. He said something like he didn't think that fake news on Facebook, you know, had a big effect on the election. Yeah, he said it was like less than 1% or something of what gets shared, but that's a pretty powerful 1%. So Farhad, let's take some calls, okay? And our question is, how are you dealing with all the tweets, the texts and posts coming at you right now? Are you shutting it all off or deciding to swim in all the information? And Abdul, you are calling from Rockaway in New Jersey, I think. Yes. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me on the show. One of the things that I've noticed happening is that people indulge in um, vulgar and racist comments, openly attacking minorities like Latinos, Muslims, blacks in their posts and comments. And I feel like it's really easy for people to do that because it's online, so they're not really visible to the general public. And now I'm beginning to get the feeling that you know people are getting emboldened by this behavior, and that is actually translating into a lot of hate crime that we get to hear, especially the kind that we are getting to see after the election. So, Abdul, what are you doing? Are you shutting it off, or are you? do you feel that this is important for you to see it? 
I am actually seeing more of it because I think it's important for all of us to realize that this kind of information is useful. Uh, I'm still looking at that information because it's a good indicator of uh, you know what's happening around me. Abdul, thank you so much. Um, I think what Abdul is talking about is something that you mentioned in one of your pieces where you talked about the Overton window, which is the range of subjects. I I had never heard this sociological term before. Mm -hmm. This is the range of subjects that we deem sort of publicly acceptable to discuss. I mean, it used to be, you know, there were certain things you just – Polite. You didn't say in public. No, it was not acceptable. And now what do you think it is? People feel safe, maybe even empowered behind a keyboard? I think there are a few reasons. So it starts because there are some racists in the world and they feel no prohibition against expressing their racism online. There's this sort of feedback loop where like if you harbor some sort of socially unacceptable views, but you keep them to yourself because you don't want other people to judge you. And then you go on Facebook and you see, hey, three of my 10 friends are sort of saying the same thing that I think. Maybe it's not such a big deal if I express that. And so you get this um, license online. I think Abdul is right. It does embolden people. It gives them a sense that, you know, it's okay. It's okay to be racist. And lots of other people think the way I do. So maybe this is the changing country and we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. Like it gives people that license. Let's hear from Alyssa, who is calling us from Brooklyn. Hey, Alyssa. Hi, how are you? Good. Tell us what's going on. So I had been a Facebook user for about nine years. I joined because, you know, share pictures of the kids and everything with the family. And then the last couple of weeks leading up to the election, I had to deactivate my account because I just couldn't take all the anxiety leading up the uh, election from my fellow Hillary supporters. It was just too nerve-wracking mm. to think about what would happen if Trump won. And then I deactivated, but then the night of the election, I reactivated it because I desperately needed a community at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it served that purpose for a short term. But then when you start seeing people from the other side calling our side crybabies and just demeaning what we were experiencing, it was really too hard to handle. And since the last week, I've deactivated and reactivated several times, but last night was the final straw. I saw something from the other side that I just couldn't stomach, and it's not healthy for me. I know where my limits are, and I'd rather focus that attention on things I can actually control instead of being part of this either echo chamber on my side or be exposed to the vitriol from the other side. It's just, it was the right choice for me. Wow. Well, I applaud you for knowing your own limits. So cheers to that, Alyssa. I want to go to Darlene, who is calling us from Ansonia, Connecticut. Darlene, what's your take? How are you handling it? Well, I used to like watch a lot of different things on social media when Trump first was running. And I live in Connecticut, but I'm originally from the Bronx, New York. And I grew up in a neighborhood that was basically a lot of Irish, Italian people. And there was black people there, but not so many of us. And I noticed when this election happened that a lot of people that were on my friends list that were white, you know, were saying things that were so negative about black and Hispanics. And I was just sitting here like, wait a minute, you know, one of these people I dated, another person, you're like, we all grew up together and you Mm. felt this way. Mm. And I got really insulted. I was starting to delete people. But then I said to myself, you know what? I like to see this information because I want to see where this is going to go now that he's president. Thank you so much, Darlene. I really appreciate it. So, I mean, Farhad, here we have Alyssa who's like, this is it. I've reached my limit. I am out. Sorry, Facebook. And then you've got Darlene who also is like, 
I'm out, but she's staying on Facebook and looking and wants to see it all. I mean, what's your take on that? Because let's just remember, at the end of the day, Facebook and all these other platforms, they want us to feel riled up about the issues. They don't want us to quit like Alyssa did, but they want us to be engaged and spend more time posting and linking and reading and seeing ads and making them money, right? Yeah. They suggest sort of the the entire dilemma of this, which is, do you want a feed that makes you feel good and not anxious? And the way to do that is to have a feed that perhaps sort of mirrors your views, or if it does show you something from, you know, the other side politically, it might be something kind of dumb, so you can sort of easily dismiss it. Mm. Or do you want a feed that presents kind of a diverse view, but that makes you feel really bad? And that's the reason why Facebook doesn't do that. I mean, no one who wants you to use their product wants to make you feel bad all Mm. the time. And so... <laughs> so it's, so I want to ask you yeah. then so you know there are some people who are saying that actually these platforms had a huge role in the outcome of the election and I guess I'm wondering you know what is the power of social media on politics or real action I don't think we have a good answer because there have been sort of different effects in different places mm-hmm. I do think that it's pretty clear that Donald Trump was able to get his views out and get a platform especially early in the campaign by using Twitter and by sort of cultivating or tapping into a very powerful group of people online, uh, an organization, you know, we now talk about it as the alt-right, but it's basically like Breitbart readers, people who are very active online, and they, you know, amplified his message. And that sort of amplification on Twitter fed into the reason why cable news booked him so often, Mm -hmm. because it was just very popular. It really can change politics, especially for groups that don't have much access to the media in the first place. You know, the alt-right, white supremacist types did not have much access at all to the mainstream media a year and a half or two years ago. But thanks to Twitter and thanks to Donald Trump's tapping into that group, they now do. I mean, they have a seat at the White House. So I want to hear um, Sloan from Connecticut. Uh, I wanted to say that I'm using social media for now, and I haven't really used it in the past, but this election has changed what I need to do coming from the perspective of being a parent. Mm. And what I'm trying to use social media for is to gather the like-minded people that have the same viewpoints to make sure that our children are going to grow up in a community that is protecting them from incidents of hate and intolerance. I think what we're seeing a lot in our communities all over the country, in Connecticut as well, is schools with isolated incidents of speech, of graffiti. There have been many upsetting things. So one of the things that I'm trying to do as a parent is to gather the people that I know who will not accept this in our communities, and I think it has to start there. Sloan, thank you. So let's go to Jen in Monmouth County. Hi, Jen. What's on your mind? So I chose not to unfriend or unfollow anyone on my Facebook feed due to their political views, because unlike Twitter, I know everyone in my Facebook circle personally, and many of those who were sharing Trump-supporting messages were members of my extended family. And especially after the Trump tapes surface, myself and the members of my family who knew this, that I am a sexual assault survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see them posting just really vitriolic and really hateful things after the tapes emerged, sort of excusing it, downplaying it, and victim-blaming was really hard for me. And it occurs to me that thanks to social media now, I know these things about some of these members of my extended family, whereas 
in previous times I might not. And I'm very conflicted as to what to do with this information because if I drop out, then I also don't get to see um, his kid win the county science fair. Right. Oh, Jen, I, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. I think so many people listening right now really empathize with the frustration that these platforms are putting on all of us. Thank you for telling us what you are personally doing. I really appreciate that. Farhad, before you go, can you just tell me more about how Silicon Valley is reacting to Donald Trump's election? I mean, California is solidly blue. The Valley is almost like navy blue. Are you hearing, starting to hear conversations about how isolated tech leaders are from the rest of the country? What the sort of um, responsibility the people making these platforms have to their users? Not in any coherent way. Um, I think this is a long-term, both a political and in some ways a, a moral problem for Silicon Valley. Right. And and they are sort of only beginning to, to deal with it. Farhad Manju is the New York Times tech columnist. Farhad, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Okay. When we come back, privacy and surveillance, things get a little dark, but these are topics that we just got to talk about. Stick with Note to Self and the United States of Anxiety's special call-in show. Okay, we're back. Get ready for the second half of our collaboration with the United States of Anxiety and the recent live call-in show that we did together. We're going to turn now to another aspect of technology and its effect on how we live and how we vote. The current head of the National Security Agency, the NSA, he is also the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. He pretty much accused Russia of using WikiLeaks to get Donald Trump elected. Here's Admiral Michael S. Rogers on stage at a Wall Street Journal conference. There shouldn't be any doubt in anybody's mind. This was not something that was done casually. This was not something that was done by chance. This was not a target that was selected purely arbitrarily. This was a conscious effort by a nation state to attempt to achieve a specific effect. Thanks to those hackers, whoever they may be, we were privy to some incredibly intimate, sometimes silly, sometimes quite serious political emails. I mean, I, for one, felt deeply uncomfortable reading Chelsea Clinton's tips to her mother about how they should upgrade the State Department's website. We want encryption to protect our bank accounts, to protect our emails, our national infrastructure and utilities. But this new president also campaigned on a promise of law and order, and there are many, many digital methodologies at his disposal. And so we want to ask you, What are your anxieties about digital surveillance in a Trump administration? What concerns you more? Is it a future terrorist attack or the potential demise of some of your civil liberties that those might have to be sacrificed in the process of keeping us safe? I want to talk privacy, surveillance, and our safety online and off and how those two things might change once Donald Trump takes office with an expert Mark Rottenberg is president and executive director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, EPIC, in Washington, D.C., and he joins us via Skype from Paris. Hello, Mark. Hi, Manoush. How are you? I'm good. It's good to hear your voice. Good to hear yours. Okay. So Donald Trump ran on a campaign promise of law and order. 
in the digital era, what are some of the tools that will potentially be at his disposal to enforce that promise of law and order? Well, I think there are two big categories. One is about private communications and the ability of the government through wiretap law, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, to intercept and capture private communications. The other big area of interest to Epic are the growing number of government databases, mm. uh, particularly within the Department of Justice and the NSA and elsewhere that give federal agencies these enormously detailed profiles on Americans. So in brief, we're looking at both interception of communications and the use of data stored in government databases. So Mark, let's take a call. I think Eric is calling from Westchester County with a question. Hey, Eric. Uh, my question is, early on in the process, I was happy about Trump. I might have said some things online I might have regretted. Now that he's elected, he has power, can he go back and look at what we were saying a year ago, nine months ago, and then put pressure on us today? Hmm, That's a good question. Eric, thank you. So, Mark, I mean, when it comes to individuals being targeted, is it possible? One of the issues that civil liberties organizations, including Epic, have begun to focus on is the government monitoring of social media. I talked a moment ago about intercepting private communication. But, of course, a lot of what we do online nowadays is visible to others. Epic had an open government lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security a few years ago where we actually uncovered the manual of the words that the DHS used to track tweets. And we learned from the manual that we obtained that the agency was trying to identify not only risks to public safety, which I guess is appropriate, but also criticisms of the agency. Mm. And that's actually kind of creepy if you think about it, a federal agency with that kind of surveillance authority tracking people who might be criticizing what the agency is doing. Yeah, especially since on the campaign trail also Trump floated the idea of keeping a database of Muslims and surveilling mosques. So in terms of like legal protections that are in place to protect people from being targeted or tracked, does that go back to the Privacy Act of like 1974? Yeah, very good. So the Privacy Act is one of the crucial legal frameworks that limits the ability of government agencies to build detailed profiles on citizens. And it's important for people to keep in mind that privacy and civil liberties in this country have long been nonpartisan issues. They should be nonpartisan issues to the extent that we face new challenges. You know, we'll be looking for allies across the spectrum. Mark, let's take a call from Ayub. Uh, hi, you know, it's a great program. Thank you. Yeah, my point is uh, I'm a Muslim, and uh, we were under surveillance. It started under Bush administration. So who would doubt that the Trump administration will not do more? Than, uh, it is uh, a bit frightening for me. Thank you so much, Ayub. I think that that is a great question, Mark. God forbid there is another incident, whether it's terrorism or any other security threat. What will it take for people to think, you know what? If this is what we've got to do, it's what we've got to do to protect ourselves. Well, you know, I remember Manoush very well the days after 9-11. I mean, we go back more than 15 years, in fact. And uh, there was a remarkable coming together at that moment in time with civil liberties organizations and civil rights organizations and the Muslim organizations. And we stood together. In fact, we created a coalition in the fall of 2001 called In Defense of Freedom. One of the messages that we tried to convey was that we had a common interest in protecting basic rights in America. 
And, you know, I don't think we're yet at that point. I'm very careful about not letting our advocacy get ahead of where the mm. political circumstance may be. But I think it is important to keep in mind that if we do reach that point, we certainly have the experience and we certainly have worked together as we did in the early years of President Bush's administration to protect the rights of individuals and do so by bringing people together. And I think it will happen again, actually. It gives me some hope, uh, having been a part of that earlier effort. Let's go to Keith. He is calling from Shirley, New York. Hi, Keith. Tell me what you're thinking about. Um, So I was told by a professor at Pace University that we should be more concerned about the private sector selling information to the government. I was just wondering your opinions on that. Such a great question, Keith. We hear this idea of the surveillance economy, all these companies making money off of watching our every move, tracking everywhere we go. Mark, what do you think about that? That's a very good point. The problems really fall in two categories. I mean, first is that the companies are commercializing our personal information. They take that data, they disclose it to others. The other problem is that increasingly the private sector is doing the data gathering work of the government surveillance agencies. Many private sector companies, data brokers and others that routinely sell their data to the FBI and others. So we've been arguing for a long time actually the United States needs a comprehensive privacy law. We need it in part to limit the commercial exploitation of personal data, but we also need it to reinforce the firewall between the private sector and the federal government. Let's go to Deborah. She's calling from Newark, New Jersey. Hi, Deborah. Oh, hello. I'm even more concerned about what will happen with surveillance in the Trump administration than what happened under the Bush administration. We've elected for president a man steeped in conspiratorial thinking, and even more than government surveillance of individuals. My concern is that we're going to be moved into a world where we will be encouraged to spy on each other and report on each other. Yeah, I, I've heard, you're not the only one who has said something like that. Mark, are Deborah's concerns warranted at this point? I thought your caller made a good point, actually. There's a phrase that we live with since 9-11. It's plastered all over the uh, train stations. It's, if you see something, say something. I've always been a little uncomfortable about that phrase. You know, a lot of times it's led people to report on activities of other people who, you know, appear different or are not acting in ways that someone doesn't necessarily understand. I do think we have to keep a check on that worldview. It is a way to get people to begin to spy on one another, and I don't think it's part of our tradition or culture. No. Uh, I think Johnny in Brooklyn has a question for you, Mark. My question is uh, regarding the surveillance program, and I wanted to know if the Trump administration would come into power, how far can they go into uh, surveillancing of Muslims? Could they even actually put trackers on us? Mark, what do you think about Johnny's question? Trackers take many forms, right? Absolutely. And of course, we had a Supreme Court case just a couple of years ago about GPS devices that police had installed on vehicles. The Supreme Court, I think, in a very good decision, said that the police needed an actual judicial warrant before they could engage in that surveillance. I think in the area of oversight and accountability, we're going to be looking to certain key institutions. One will certainly be the Congress. 
And I know people are concerned because the majorities in the House and the Senate are the same political party as the president. But nonetheless, congressional committees will have an obligation to do oversight of the federal agencies. And I think that's a very important opportunity for the public to weigh in about these issues. And we're also going to look to the courts because the judiciary remains a key bastion for the protection of rights of individuals when the president oversteps. Let's take a call from Will. Uh, He's in Westchester. Hey, Will. Hey. The point I wanted to make was that there's a more fundamental issue underlying all of this, and that is that law enforcement is operating on the basic theory of if we watch a lot of stuff and filter out the good guys, we can catch the bad guys. And that might work sometimes if the bad guys are stupid. But... For anyone who is even moderately well-informed, there is publicly available, long-known, unbreakable, even by NSA and the FBI, ways to encrypt your communications. So in grabbing as much as they possibly can, law enforcement is going to come up with a bunch of stuff, and in there, there might be communications from terrorists or bad folks, but only from really stupid terrorists or bad folks. (laughs) The bad folks and terrorists who know what they're doing aren't going to be catchable that way. And so when law enforcement is asking for more authority to break into this and break into that and collect this and collect that, their motivation is ill-based and kind of pointless, and it's what Bruce Schneier calls security theater to a very great extent. Mark, what do you think? Is (laughs) Will right that actually... You don't catch bad guys by breaking through encryption. I'll say something a little bit controversial. I do respect and understand the important role that law enforcement has uh, in protecting public safety and, and identifying genuine risks. But at the same time, if the Bureau or any other federal agency says they need new surveillance authority, I think we need to find a way to make sure that there's adequate oversight. And if the programs are not working as they're supposed to work, then I think they should be shut down. I think there really needs to be pushback from the public. There are a lot of people who voted for President Trump who I think are understandably concerned about what might happen if there's not adequate oversight. And we're going to need them involved in these debates as well. Mark, just before we go, though, I feel like there's one sort of urgent thing we need to ask you. Do you think that there are some people who need to start using encryption or privacy tools? Would you recommend certain people do this or is that fear mongering? Well, you know, I really do believe the protection of civil liberties and privacy is is a common undertaking in this country. I don't think particular groups should feel targeted. And I think to the extent that one person needs to use encryption, I think we should all use encryption. But I also believe that we should have the protections in law that respect the privacy of our communications. You know, this actually goes back to Benjamin Franklin. He gets the Pony Express underway so that he can move mail around the country, and then he helps get the first privacy law through the U.S. Congress because he recognizes the importance of protecting confidentiality. That's a very big part of the American tradition, and I think we need to defend it and extend it in the years ahead. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this collaboration with WNYC Studios' United States of Anxiety. And a big thank you to the whole Anxiety team for making it happen. Can I call them the Anxiety team? I don't know. That just makes me happy, actually. By the way, lots of you responded to our note-to-self cross-political 
matchmaking call out that we had. We want to pair up listeners on different sides of the political aisle so that they can talk and try to understand each other away from Facebook feeds and headlines. But here's the thing. We need a few more Trump supporters to make this happen. So if you are game for some good old-fashioned conversation, please email us at note to self at WNYC.org. Next week, we are back with a brand new episode, not about the election. Yeah, I need a little break too. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Jenna Cagle, and Joe Plord. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Samarodi. I'll talk to you soon.